and the, and the pitch was to the to the contributors was, look, you guys are like the Beatles of pizza, and I'm like the the band playing in the Marriott lobby. I'm playing your greatest hits. I'm the house band. So this is a tribute book. Well, these recipes are tribute recipes based on your original, uh, we'll call them greatest hits. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm senior editor Anna Hiesel, here with editor-in-chief Matt Rodbard. Today, Anna is talking to pizza legend Peter Reinhardt. Peter has written many cookbooks about bread baking and pizza, and his book, Perfect Pan Pizza, is a perennial favorite in my household. But his most recent book is Pizza Quest, which pays tribute through recipes to some of his favorite pizzas around the country. We got to talk about the changing world of artisan pizza, the case for owning at-home pizza ovens, and more. Here's Anna talking to Peter. Welcome to the Taste Podcast, Peter Reinhardt. Thanks. Good to be with you, Anna. Your latest book, Pizza Quest, just came out. I think one could say that life is just one long pizza quest, <laughs> but what sent you on the pizza quest of writing this book in particular? Yeah, I, I think everybody's on some kind of quest. For me, it really is pizza, and I think most people, uh, you know, get they can relate to the idea of, of looking for the perfect pizza because everyone loves pizza, but... Um, in this particular instance, this grew out of a podcast that I do uh, on my website called Pizza Quest. And uh, during the pandemic, we started to do one-on-one Zoom interviews with some of the top pizza luminaries around the country because we weren't able to get back out on the road and do it. It's actually a video podcast. So we would go out and, and record on site and get really great footage and put up videos. Uh, but we couldn't do that during the last few years. So we decided to just do it from home. And uh, we probably uh, recorded about 65, 70 interviews with uh, some of the top pizza makers in America and not just pizza people, but also uh, artisans who are doing things connected to pizza or people who are just doing something very interesting that has a sort of quest quality to it. So we always say on Pizza Quest that it's more about the quest than it is about the pizza. But uh, this was the perfect opportunity to gather lots and lots of information from uh, from the top pizza makers and find out kind of what it is that drives them in their own personal quest and what kind of uh, many of them have a striving for excellence that that you can't really quantify. You can only just kind of get a sense of it. So we were able to go to dive deep with some of these folks. And uh, in the end, uh, we had all these interviews. We're still doing them, actually. It's gone going. We the podcast continues. But um, but what I realized was, is I've, I have all this incredible intellectual property they essentially these people their pizzas they're they're doing demos for us on our video and and uh and so we asked them if they would like to participate in this project and many of them said yeah i'd be happy to contribute a pizza or two pizzas uh and my goal was and my my job was was to create a homemaker's version of these these creative tremendous pizzas that were being made by the top pizza makers and that's what I worked on. So we gathered uh, in the end 35 recipes from 30 contributors, and I basically did the doughs. They're my dough formulas, and reformulated their idea based on a beauty shot that they sent me of their pizzas. 
and a general description from them of what the pizza was. Uh, and then I did a version that home people could do, you know, and, and, the, and the pitch was to the, to the contributors was, look, you guys are like the Beatles of pizza. And I'm like the, the band playing in the Marriott lobby. I'm playing your greatest hits. I'm the house band. So this is a tribute <laughs> book. Well, these recipes are tribute recipes based on your original, uh, we'll call them greatest hits. And so that's what this book is, is a greatest hits album. I love that. And one of the topics that you sort of touch on in the book is like, setting aside the idea of the perfect pizza or the best pizza and sort of just embracing, you know, the the experience of eating lots of different pizzas and appreciating them for what it's what they're worth. Why should people sort of set aside this idea of the perfect pizza? Well, I think there the, we, we there's nothing wrong with the idea of looking for sort of a benchmark or uh, a pizza that distinguishes itself and sets itself apart from the pack. That's kind of what I do in my first pizza book, American Pie, my search for the perfect pizza, which is what started this uh, and then turned into the podcast. And now it's turned into this new book. Um, you know, I always uh, felt that um, uh, the hardest part of the job was to define what is a perfect pizza. And I, I, I heard a great uh, talk by Malcolm Gladwell about a, a food consultant named Howard Moskowitz, who, who who consulted for some of the big food companies uh, and helped them get past the idea of having some sort of platonic, perfect, ideal version of a spaghetti sauce or of a, a, a cola drink. Is there a perfect Coke? Is there a perfect Pepsi? Is there a perfect uh, Prego? And he said there are only perfect Pregos. There are only perfect colas because everybody's so different. And and. People have different desires and needs. So he started a whole trend back in the 1980s for these big food companies to come out with variations of their sort of anchor product. And I think that's true of pizza because there's dozens of ways to make a good pizza. There's thick, there's thin, there's square, there's round, there's you know uh, cracker crust, there's bar pizzas. So it, within each style, there's certain ones that kind of, again, they, they establish a benchmark of excellence. And so what I wanted to find out was, was what is it that differentiates that excellence or what I'll call the memorable pizzas, because that's how I define great as, and, and excellent as being memorable. What distinguishes them from the 99% of the other pizzas that are good, but are just good and they're not memorable. And so that was that's kind of what, the, what that, that helped to define what the quest itself is. And then within that, we started to find, you know, when I wrote American Pie, there were maybe only... 20 to 25 pizzerias in America doing pizza at that level, that benchmark level of excellence. Uh, the one that was most notable back then was Pizzeria Bianco in Phoenix, which has now since become everyone knows about it. But when the book came out, it was only known to a few people, the foodies and the people who lived in Phoenix, Arizona, of all places uh, where it was located. Uh, but now it's become, uh, again, the poster child of the artisan pizza movement. And it's only, again, one style of pizza. But what he did was, was he moved the bar uh, of, of people's expectations of what a pizza could actually be, how good it could be, how it could kind of become an aha experience. And after that, everybody started to shoot for that bar. So now there are hundreds, literally hundreds of pizzerias around this country and throughout the world that have raised their own bars and are doing great and, and memorable pizzas. So what I wanted to do was essentially pay tribute to as many of them as I could in this book. And we really only scratched the surface of the people that could have been included. Some places opened after the book 
uh, came out. Some places I didn't know about, uh, we're finding out about them, we're including them in another round of interviews for the podcast. And if we're lucky enough to have a second volume, you know, I, I, could, I could keep doing this series for, for years because there's no end of, of quality, excellent, memorable pizza out there. Yeah. And pizza, I think, is like actually sort of unique in the world of like types of food in that there's so much conversation happening within the world of pizza. Like every pizza maker you talk to has like 10 other people in the industry who they respect and have learned from, maybe like lightly plagiarized over the years. But it's like a very convivial conversation that's always always seems to be happening in the pizza world. That's really true. It's I call it a tribe. It's almost like when you go to this pizza expo uh, that, that where people gather either in Vegas and and a smaller version of it in Atlantic City and you get anywhere from 10,000 to 3000 people will gather in any one place. Everybody is happy to see each other. It, everyone realizes that we're kind of in the trenches together, those people in the pizza world know how hard it is, you know, to make a living at this, as with any restaurant. And there's a sense of fraternity and, and, uh, yeah, I just call it the sort of recognition that we're all part of the same tribe. So it almost becomes a tribal gathering when the pizza makers get together. And there really are no secrets. People don't feel, everyone knows that anyone else with, with culinary skills could copy or duplicate what you're trying to do once they kind of figure it out. So nobody tries, to, it's not very territorial that way. It's, it's more supportive. There's so many people that are willing to help in. And if somebody else is doing a place, you know, that's in a different city and they need help with their formula or they, they want to have some questions about the marketing or the, 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 the kitchen design or whatever, uh, everyone I've met in this community is extremely generous about sharing that knowledge. Another issue that you tackle in the book is sort of this question of balancing tradition, which is so important to pizza makers, with a sense of innovation. And your book has recipes for pizza that's topped with potato chips, yeah, right. jerk chicken, shrimp and corn. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, what is is there such thing as too innovative when it comes to pizza toppings? Do you draw that's the line a, anywhere? That's a really good question because, you know, there are two camps, maybe more than two, but at least two camps. One is the the hardcore traditionalist camp where, you know, this is how we make a pizza in Naples. And if you don't do it this way, then it's not an authentic Neapolitan pizza. And then there's uh, the people that sort of fudge on those rules. And then there are the people that say rules are made to be broken. And, and so my take on that you know, is that there's really one rule that supersedes all of those other rules. And that rule I call the flavor rule. And the flavor rule is this, flavor rules. And so in the end, the, the real question is, does it work? Pizza, when it, you break it down, is really simple. It's dough with something on it. It's not rocket science. It's not, it's not esoteric. It's dough with something on it. It's the most basic of all peasant foods. And, but there's something about pizza that makes it the most popular food in the world, and it is because it delivers flavor. It never fails to deliver flavor. And uh, even a, a mediocre or what, what might be called a bad pizza, which, which I don't think there is such a thing unless you burn it, uh, but even in, you know just a, a below average pizza still delivers flavor. And we know that that's true because we see how many thousands and thousands of frozen pizzas every day are being sold, and, and nobody would sort of claim that those are destination or artisan pizzas, but they still work. 
but then there's these others that kind of have raised the bar. So in this country especially, and I think the the the, the culinary community in the Americas, both Canada and the United States, and even now in South America, uh, you know, we sort of pride ourselves on first kind of mastering the tech, the methods, the science, and the and the the basic rules that govern baking, and then seeing how far we can push the envelope. And uh, we saw that happen here, you know, 35 years ago with Wolfgang Puck at Spago when he started introducing, you know, pizza to at a white tablecloth restaurant. Alice Waters did the same thing at Chez Panisse. And they were basically saying pizza can be, you know, a destination food. It can be uh, considered a gourmet uh, food. Well, that was a breakthrough idea in itself. And then that sort of opened the floodgates to a whole lot of people doing all sorts of experimentation. And, and then some people push it too far. They put too many things on top of the pizza. They'll make a kitchen sink pizza in which all these great ingredients are all muddled together so you don't really get the essence of, you know, of what's great about those ingredients. So that would be like sort of a violation of the flavor rule is that it, it gets in the way of delivering, you know, the best flavor experience. Uh, but in the end, if you just go for the, for the flavor rule, then that can guide you into determining. I get emails all the time from people saying, you know, I've tried doing this and this is not okay. And I, my first response back is, how did it taste? Did it taste great? And they said, no, it was great. People loved it. I said, so what's the problem? You know, go for it. You just, you, you met the criteria of the flavor rule. And if you had to break the, uh, the Naples, uh, you know, DOP, uh, you know, uh, rule book to do it, then so be it. It worked. Chris Bianco broke them in, in, uh, in uh, Phoenix when he did Pizzeria Bianco. He was doing a quote Neapolitan pizza. Now we call his style Neapolitan ish because it's inspired by the, the Naples method with the VPN rules and everything else. It's inspired by that, but it doesn't follow them. It doesn't use the Italian flour. It doesn't use necessarily the tomatoes from San Marzano. In fact, he uses his own tomatoes from, you know, that are grown in California. Um, it doesn't bake for 60 to 90 seconds. It bakes for about four minutes. Nancy Silverton did the same thing at uh, Pizzeria Mozza. She does a pizza that bakes it for about six and a half minutes. And uh, and that violates a lot of the, the theoretical rules, but it delivers a pizza that is, you know, among, you know, maybe my top five favorite pizzas anywhere. So uh, once you understand, you know, what you're shooting for, you may have various different ways of getting there. But in the end, it's all about delivering flavor and, and satisfying your customer. Definitely. Sort of on the home cooking side of things, I think of you as someone who really has a finger on the pulse of how Americans are cooking pizza at home. Your last book, Perfect Pan Pizza, came out just as there was sort of this renaissance happening with Detroit-style pan pizza. Right. What do you think is changing right now in the world of pizza at home? That's a good question. There's always, uh, you know, movement that people we, we do as as a culture tend to get bored with having the same thing over and over. We want whatever the newest thing is. And sometimes, you know, you can get in a rush to get, you know, too far ahead of ourselves until before we've we've explored what's what's there. But uh, when I look at what's coming, when I when, when I think about, OK, what are the things that we should be looking for over the next few years as the sort of pizza journey that everyone's on evolves? One thing that I think we're going to see more and more of and many of of uh, the people who are listening today probably already have experienced this is we're going to see more sourdough pizzas because sourdough as a as as the base for your crust 
is it's the future. It's the past. It's the you know it's the original way of making dough, and but it is the future. I think we're going to see even pizzerias that are famous for their regular yeasted doughs are going to start moving into sourdough, and there's a reason for this. And one is that it fulfills the flavor rule. Sourdough pizza, when done right, it, it delivers even more complex and interesting flavors. Uh, but then, of course, there's also the the wellness factors. Uh, we're all very interested in eating for better health. And there's a lot of evidence coming forth that's showing that sourdough fermentation makes the dough more digestible and less offensive to people who have gluten sensitivities and things like that. So it's not an, a cure-all. But it does kind of check off some of the most important things that people want today. But but it, not, the health thing is important. But it wouldn't matter if it didn't also check off the flavor box, you know. And it and it does. So I think we're seeing that, you know. So the one of the hottest pizzas of the moment, pizzerias of the moment, is Pizzeria Raza in Jersey City, which is uh, you know just over the bridge from Brooklyn. You know, it's so close and hard to get into. And he just came out, Dan Richer, who's featured in our book as well and was and has been interviewed on Pizza Quest. Um, you know, he's doing a sourdough pizza. He's one of the pioneers of that in New York City. Anthony Mangieri at Una Pizza Napolitana has been doing it for 20 years. But he was standing there sort of alone in this island. And it was it's what made him unique for a long time. But now everyone around is are filling in. They're all doing it now. They're all doing sourdough pizzas. So it's no longer unique. But they're all together are raising that bar. Uh, and, and we're seeing it like popcorn, it's popping all over the place. So that's one thing that's definitely happening. Uh, another thing that I'm seeing, another big trend in the pizza world is the um, uh, the growing number of women pizzaiolas who are getting into the game. It used to be a man's business, pizza, the pizzaiolo, and now we're seeing pizzaiolas, and many of them are doing extraordinary work. Uh, Sarah Minnick in Portland, Oregon, was cited by the New York Times recently in that article, what which uh, pointed to Portland as being the, the best pizza city in America uh, on the word of the modernist pizza group. Um, and I agree with them, by the way. Portland is a really great pizza city. It's really innovative. Um, and Sarah at a, her restaurant's called uh, Lovely 50-50. Lovely's 50-50. And 50-50 means 50% pizza, 50% homemade ice cream. So she's really checking the boxes, you know, They're killing the flavor roll to the top, pushing it. Um, and uh, she's doing really great farm-to-table pizzas. And farm-to-table, of course, is almost a cliche now, but it wasn't a few years ago. Uh, but really, you know, that's how Wolfgang Puck started 35, 40 years ago at Spago is his pizza maker, Ed Ledoux, would go out every day to the farm market and he would see what was available and he'd come back and create two pizzas for the night. And, and he rarely repeated himself. He was always making new pizzas. He developed hundreds of pizzas, uh, eventually uh, ended up going to work for California Pizza Kitchen, where they followed that template and came up with all these innovative topping ideas. So. Uh, but the, but going to the market, getting fresh local produce is certainly a an important trend. It's it's already I wouldn't say it's it's going to tip over. It has tipped over. Everybody's sort of doing it now, and it's almost a you almost say a ticket of entry. If you're going to get into it, you better be prepared to be working with local farmers and local growers. Uh, so those are a couple of things. And then you know playing with flavor combinations is is certainly um, never going to end. And uh, and then bringing the international aspect in, we're seeing, of course, the international pizzerias are jumping in and we're seeing great pizza in Asia. Uh, even the Europeans are looking at what's going over on this side of the pond and bringing some of those ideas back there, just like we go over there and bring some of their ideas you know, here. 
There's a lot of that. And South America has a hugely vibrant pizza culture, both in Brazil and Argentina. They're, they're, they're on fire with pizza down there. And, uh, and Brazilian pizza and Argentina pizza are very different from each other. So it's, yeah. So I think, uh, the, the one other trend is, uh, the Roman style pizza, which we haven't seen it really break big in the United States yet. The Detroit style is a pan pizza that's, you know, about an inch thick and, uh, loaded with cheese and people love that. The Roman style can be also thick, almost like a focaccia thick, but it's also very light and airy and often is topped when it comes out of the oven. And it can be sold like a focaccia. It can be sold cold. So they'll bake it ahead of time and put, you know, some really creative toppings, arugula and, and uh, prosciutto ham and also a beautiful uh, decorative work on top of the pizza with this fabulous crust underneath, light airy with a crisp undercrust. And then you could sell it by the square instead of by, by you know, to order. We're going to see if that come. It's coming slowly. I thought it would happen a little faster, but the problem is it's not that easy to execute at a high level. So while there are people that are training other people to do it, um, it the, there's only a few places in the, in the country where it's really happening at a high level. But I think it's only a matter of time before that catches on as well, because it's so good that once you taste it, you know, you really want to you go on a, you go on a sort of a Roman pizza quest as well. Uh, Gabriel Banchi, of course, is the is the, the guy in, in Rome who's helped launch this trend. But there's a guy named Massimiliano Saiva who's been training a lot of pizza makers in America. And he came out of that same tradition from Rome. And his pizza, his style of pizza is different from Gabriel Banchi's. Uh, so even within Roman, there could be variations on a theme. But I think that's one that keep an eye on. It's, it's going to be coming. In that category, uh, they're helping to sort of popularize the use of other grains, you know, specialty grains, ancient grains, uh, you know, uh, uh, heirloom grains and things like that. Uh, that's going to come in as well. And that's if you look at the artisan bread movement, you can sort of see that as a harbinger of the trends that will show up eventually in the pizza world. And and certainly ancient the use of ancient and, and uh, uh, regionally specifically grown grains. Those are those ideas have traction and they're just going to get bigger and bigger. When it comes to sort of making like real Italian styles of pizza at home, I often think one of the big hurdles for home cooks is ovens and just like having the right oven temperature because it makes such a big difference. Obviously, a lot of professional pizza ovens get up to 900 degrees Fahrenheit or so. So it's hard to achieve yeah. that at home. What's your at-home pizza <laughs> setup like? Do you make pizza outside? Do you make it in your oven, in your kitchen? I do both. I have a small little wood-fired oven out in my back, which I use sometimes. Uh, I also have now one of those Breville Pizzaiolo uh, electric ovens that's designed to bake at all different levels of heat all the way up to 800 degrees. So you can do a great classic Neapolitan pizza in them. Uh, and then a lot of my friends are getting rock boxes and uni ovens, which are inexpensive. Uh, they, they're basically you know, small and portable, so you can move them around and you can get them with wood or you can fire them up with propane, uh, but it bakes like a brick oven. And so the, all those things are possible. But the other thing to know is that, um, that you can bake a great Neapolitan pizza uh, in your home oven if you can get your oven up to 500 or 550 degrees, that's hot enough if you use a pizza stone or a pizza steel, you know, to absorb that heat and radiate it back into the crust. 
it might take longer than 90 seconds to bake as it would in a, in a uni, but it, in about four and a half minutes, you'll have a great pizza, just like Crispianco's or at about the same time. So, so while it won't look in, and taste exactly like one coming out of uh, a pizza made in Naples uh, or at one of your local Neapolitan, you know, 900 degree pizza restaurants, it's going to be uh, every bit as satisfying. It'll be a little crisper. A little, it'll have a little bit more al dente quality because it won't soften up the way a 60 to 90 second pizza softens up when it comes out of the oven. But you know what? I kind of prefer that myself anyway. I like that little crackle and the and and the the the, the chew back, you know, that it gives you. So that still works for me. But uh, that doesn't limit us, in other words. But I think that anyone who's limited by space or uh, cost and don't want to build a uh, a wood-fired, large wood-fired oven, then these unis and rock boxes are very affordable. They're a couple hundred dollars, I think, to get into the game. Uh, the Revel, which is a, a terrific, it's one I use when I'm doing like uh, Zoom pizza classes. Uh, I can plug it in right here in my office and have it on a table and make pizzas. Um, they're closer to $900, so they're not as as inexpensive, but they do a great job. So there's there's ranges for how to do that. And then the pan pizzas, the great thing about pan pizzas, whether it's Sicilian style or focaccia or Detroit style, is that you only need to go up to 475 to 500 degrees to get the perfect version of that. So I've made pan, Detroit style pizzas in my home oven, which is just a regular General Electric you know, electric oven. Um, I've been making pizzas in there that I would put up against any pizzerias in the country in terms of the the outcome, the way it comes out of the oven, it hits all the the check marks. The undercrust is perfectly crackly and buttery, and and uh, it's airy and, and creamy in the center, and uh, oozing cheese, and you get this great frico around the edge, uh, and that's all in a home oven. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote the pan pizza book is because it's it's also much more uh, user friendly for the house, you know, the the homemakers, for people who want to cook at home. And um, and you don't have to even worry about having special equipment for that. You just need a pan that's tall enough. And if you don't have a, a square Detroit style pan, you can use a cake pan, uh, anything that where the sides are two inches or more in height and you're, you're good to go. I often get this question, like living in New York, just about where people should eat pizza in New York. And I think a lot of travel books and articles about New York food tend to fall back onto the idea of like there is one style of New York pizza and it's at X, Y, and Z place. Mm -hmm. But I'm always sort of at a loss for describing like what actually is New York style pizza because there are so many amazing pizza yeah. styles in this city. That's true. Is there, are there like, is there sort of like a um, archetypal style that you associate or a slice that you associate with New York? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, over the years, the term New York pizza has had to be expanded to include maybe three or four variations of New York style pizza, because they're, what we what most people think of, I think, as New York pizza is the, are the slice shops. The play, like John Travolta walking down a street carrying two slices of pizza folded over, you know, and stuffing it in his mouth. Uh, uh, kind of... Uh, uh, the the pizzerias that you see and on every corner, you know, in Manhattan and maybe in Brooklyn as well, uh, those are made in a particular style. They're designed to be big slices. Uh, the doughs are the ones that they toss up in the air when they're making them. That's one style of New York pizza. And then there's the a little bit more uh, 
artisan style New York style pizza that is baked that's that's a little bit more there's more attention paid to the quality of the dough itself to the crust uh, it's a little more airy it's not quite as bready the quality there's a lot of focus on the quality of the ingredients so that it's pushed into an artisan territory um, and they're still technically New York style anything that's the what New York style is is essentially Neapolitan pizza. If you look at them on their, on their doors, they'll say something like, we make Neapolitan pizza. Well, it's not Neapolitan the way that Naples does it. It's Neapolitan the way New Yorkers reinterpreted what pizza should be. So Lombardi's and John's started bringing the Neapolitan style pizza to New York 100 years ago. They were inspired by Naples, but they were working with American ingredients, uh, coal-fired ovens instead of wood-fired ovens. They had all different kinds of parameters to deal with. So they invented essentially a new kind of pizza which generically we can call New York style pizza. And it moved up to New Haven. And all those are basically variations of New York style pizza. I live in Philadelphia. I grew up in Philadelphia and we had Philadelphia pizza, but really it was New York pizza, New York style pizza, because New York Philly is almost like a, uh, Philadelphians won't agree with me about this, but you know, it's like a, it's like a distant suburb of New York city. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a big, it's a big cousin standing there, you know, hundred miles away. So that's the style of pizza that most people grew up with when pizza hut and Domino's, you know, took pizza across America. Um, that's Neapolitan ish pizza It's it's, it's modeled and inspired by that Neapolitan sauce, cheese in a round form. Uh, but even those pizzas are different. And in all those, um, those large pizza chains, all their pizzas are very different from each other as well, but they're all in that style. And you can make a case that they're all kind of plays off of New York style pizza. And then, and then Detroit came up with their own style baked in a square pan. And St. Louis has a style, which is a very thin crust using a unique cheese blend called Provel. And, uh, you know, different regions have come up with, with uh, tweaks that have, that have differentiated their style of pizza from other areas. And they're basically regional uh, you know, I would say there's a regional, not just a regional bias, but a, um, uh, an, an affinity for the people who live in those regions to want to support those style of pizzas. Like look at the argument between New York and Chicago, uh, when it comes to Chicago deep dish pizza, you know, New Yorkers will say, that's not a pizza, that's a casserole. And Chicago would say, who cares? It's a, it does, it's a pizza and it's really good. You know, I don't know. It's, I think it's fascinating that all these things technically are pizza. Because they all meet the one definition, which is dough with something on it, or uh, you know, and if it's got uh, if it's folded over and it's a calzone, it's still dough with something on it. Um, so I can make an argument that a grilled cheese sandwich is almost a variation of a pizza. It's just <laughs> instead of dough with something on it, it's dough with something in between, you know, in, inside. Only but if you really want to piss people <laughs> off. Yeah, yeah, but but that's what I'm saying is that dough with something on it is really the template for delivering flavor. Whatever you call it, if you call it a quesadilla, you know, it still delivers that kind of experience that you get from a great pizza. And it's in a sense, you could call it a Tex-Mex pizza, but it's, you know, but it's a quesadilla. And so there's are different names for these in different parts of the world. Um, but in the end, it's dough with something on it. That's that's the magic. That's where the magic happens. And in order for it to happen at the highest level, and this is the point of my explorations, is that to happen at the highest level, it first starts with the dough, not with the fillings. You could have the best cheeses in the world. You could have truffles on top of it. You could have, you know, the most expensive ingredients in the world uh, and most flavorful ingredients in the world on top. But if your crust isn't extraordinary, then your pizza is going to be at best interesting. It'll be good and interesting, but it won't be memorable. Uh, people remember what people remember is that that sound of that crust, 
the 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 complexity of that simple dough and um, you know the mouthfeel of it and how it helps to convey the flavors of all the things that were on top, which are almost like the bonus. I got in trouble on the podcast a few months ago for bad-mouthing Chicago-style pizza. <laughs> um, and I we totally got angry letters, in, of course, because, you know, it's a sensitive subject to Chicagoans. And I'm going to Chicago in a few weeks, so I'm going to give it another try. I'm going to try some pizzas. Well, there are also, you know, great pizzerias in Chicago that are not the deep dish style. That's just one style there. And they do have some great, you know, round pizzas. There's some great square pizzas there. There's... You know, there's there's uh, um, two or three places that are, you know, rank among the best in the country. Um, but the, the, I think that's the interesting thing is, is that so it helps for me to be a pizza, pizza omnivore. And, and I'm very uh, ecumenical when it comes to pizza. I love all kinds of pizza. So I'm not going to probably ever badmouth anyone's style. I'll say, you know, I'm kind of leaning towards this style at the moment. This is the style I'm craving right now. But, uh, you know, when you're in love with pizza, you, you know, you, you don't want to. Um, you, you, you certainly don't want to alienate anybody, but but more importantly, you can equally love all these different styles if you can get out of the regional bias. Uh, you know, I'm from Philadelphia, so I don't believe anybody can make a good cheesesteak sandwich outside of Philadelphia, but I know that's not true. I know you can, but my Philadelphia mind wants me to not believe it when I eat a bite in in Charlotte that uh, that I'll taste it. I'll go, it's really good, but it's not a Philadelphia cheesesteak. Uh, and somebody who's never had that uh, Philadelphia cheesesteak will taste it and go, wow, it's really good to me. I don't know what, what what's your problem, you know. So uh, I think that, that a lot of that is sort of that that uh, uh, I, well, regional bias is one name for it. I guess you could just call it, you know, what we what we're familiar with is what we love. Definitely. What is the most underrated pizza city in the U.S., do you think? Because, I mean, Chicago, New York get a lot of credit for their pizzas, but there are so many good pizza cities out there. It's true. I don't I mean, it, and it changes all the time. I mean, let's face it, the, you know, a, like Charlotte uh, five years ago had hardly any great you know, pizzerias. And, and now we've got dozens of them because the whole pizza category has just exploded with great places. We have an Emmy squared here in Charlotte now, which is started in Brooklyn, a great Detroit-style pizza made in Brooklyn. Um, and Emmy's down here. Emily Emily moved down here. She lives in Charlotte now. She has two restaurants right, right within a couple of miles of here, of where I'm uh, sitting right now. Um, so Charlotte was, you know, uh, was definitely a properly not not underrated. It was properly not not in the in the in the conversation. But now you could say it is, but not that many people know about it unless they've been here. So. Uh, uh, so, for instance, when Eric Wareheim was in town a couple of weeks ago, who's been traveling all over the country eating, he's on a food quest, not a pizza quest. But, you know, he didn't even come to this thing thinking he was going to find good pizza. We, we, I took him to a couple of places and we had great pizza. And uh, and so this is the city of Charlotte is one that is uh, under the radar, let's say right now, but will be you know more and more uh, known. There's even a couple of people from the city uh, who are featured in the book in, in Pizza Quest. Um Partly because I had access to them, they're here. I know their food. I, I eat at their restaurants, but uh, also their their pizzas were great, and uh, and they're uh, champions in their own right at the competitions and all. Um, I'm trying to think of any other cities. I, don't, I haven't the last couple of years. I haven't gotten around very much, like everybody else. I've been I've been you know traveling through my Zoom screen to everywhere. Um, uh, San Francisco, I always thought was a city that should have had more great pizzerias, uh, and now they do. Uh, Tony uh, uh, Gemignani, who's one the world champion pizza maker, 
uh, has the most popular pizzeria in San Francisco, and he's got places in other parts of the country. Uh, but he that restaurant didn't didn't exist uh, more than uh, I think it was about he opened about eight or ten years ago. Uh, his his uh, uh, Tony's Pizza Napolitana. Uh, I think it was about 10 years ago he opened. And now there's a whole bunch of other great pizzerias in the city of San Francisco. Uh, when I was living in there back in the 80s, there was maybe one destination pizzeria. And I've even blanked out on the name. It's still there. But it was the one place. And now and that place has stayed the same. And everyone else has kind of leapfrogged above them. Um, so that city is, um, you know, is is trying to catch up. Usually Portland is trying to catch up to San Francisco when it comes to food. And now San Francisco is trying to catch up to Portland when it comes to pizza. Um, and I think they're getting running neck and neck. Um, where else? I, I've heard of cities that I haven't been to, you know, that have great pizza restaurants. And many, almost every city has at least one great pizza restaurant. The question is, has, has there developed a kind of a pizza culture and a pizza community uh, to where a city becomes identified as part of their cultural identity includes pizza. And, and there are not that many cities that you could say have that, you know, that uh, aura around them. Uh, and yet there may be like Phoenix, Arizona had one great pizzeria, Pizzeria Bianco, but it changed the whole city. It changed the whole culinary scene in, in the Phoenix area. And now there's a dozen or so great pizzerias, you know, in that part of Arizona. Um, but it's not known. You would never think of Phoenix, Arizona as having a pizza culture. But maybe they have the beginning of it now that there are more people doing it. They have it. So I, I'm, I, it's, I haven't really answered your question properly because I don't have a good answer because I don't know all the places that are that would be, quote, underrated. But I'm sure your listeners do. They probably, uh, you know, everyone uh, can can say that uh, the, of a place or maybe it's where they're living, where they say this this city is totally unrecognized. And yet it's you know, it's as good as the cities you're talking about. Definitely. I mean, there's pizza all over the country. There are hundreds and hundreds of spots that it's hard to visit them all. I know. I know when I, way back when I first started, like he got the idea for American Pie, even before that, somebody told me there was this great pizzeria in Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh, and he said, when you go to, and I, I'll think of the name of it in a second, I never got there. He said, well, when you go to Lincoln, you have to go to this pizzeria. And, um, uh, by the time I got around to writing American Pie, uh, I asked somebody who's from Lincoln about this place, and they said, "Yeah, it used to be really great, but it's kind of like, you know, it's, they're just they're just phoning it in now." Uh, and that's what happens to a lot of places that are older is that they they dial into a formula, and then the founders and the people who had the fire in their belly to do excellent work are no longer there. They've passed on. Maybe their family members weren't interested in carrying on, so they sold it to other people, and it just became a business that was profitable. They were making money. They were making good enough pizza, but it wasn't. It was no longer benchmark pizza, and uh, and I think that's that's a common you know pattern. Uh, in the in in American Pie, I tell the story of um, my favorite pizzeria growing up as a kid, Mama's Mama's Pizzeria, which also made my favorite cheesesteak. They had the best cheesesteak and the best pizza, and it was only three miles from my house, and I loved it. And I was even a delivery boy for them for a while. And um, and Paul, the owner, made the pizzas. And they, I, I would, you know, for a long time, I thought they were the best until I got around the rest of the country and started seeing that there's great pizza. And then um, I went back uh, about, I'm going to say it was about uh, 18 years ago. I went back to Philadelphia to visit my family. And my brother brought some pizzas and cheesesteaks from Mama's to my mother's house and we all had, we opened the boxes and we were eating them. 
And I took a bite of the cheesesteak. And the first words out of my mouth were, oh, my God, this is better than I remember it. And uh, my brother laughed at me and he said, yeah, yeah, it's too bad you moved away because we get these all the time. And then I took a bite of the pizza and I said, but this pizza's not as good as I remember it. Something's changed about the pizza. And he said, are you sure? It's, it hasn't changed to us. And I said, no, no, there's something different. I, I, I can't quite put my finger on it. I think it's the crust. And he goes, are you sure it's the pizza that's changed and not you? And I thought that was a valid question. Maybe it's just me. Maybe my, my, you know, my expectations have changed. Uh, and that's how I got the idea to write American Pie was that this, to answer the question, was it me or the pizza that had changed? And so at the end of my research for the book, going all around the country uh, and collecting, you know, the knowledge and the information that I needed to write the book, I still wasn't sure exactly what how I was going to tell this story. And so I went back to Mama's. And I called when I got to the city, I called and I said, I'd like to come over. Is Paul there? And and this guy guy said, well, this is Paul. And I said, no, you you can't be Paul. Paul's uh, you're too young to be Paul. And he started laughing. He said, oh, you're talking about my father, Paul Sr. He says, this is Paul Jr. He said, yeah, my dad retired like 10 years ago and uh, nobody else in the family wanted the, the business except me. I so I, I I've been running it ever since. And I said, OK, I remember you. You were the kid who used to like, you know, stand by the by the grill uh, when you were like 13 years old. And he said, yeah, but I'm 43 now, you know, <laughs> and, and and I'm running this. So he said, but come on over, you know, and and so I got went over there and I sat down with him and I asked him, I said, OK, I got it. I got to ask you this question, because the last time I tasted one of your pizzas, um, my and my brother brought it over in a box. And and so when I tasted it, it just didn't taste the same as the pizza changed. And he started chuckling again. And he said, so you noticed, huh? And I said, it has changed, hasn't it? He says, oh, yeah, it's not as good as when my dad made it. And he says, but I don't care. And I said, how could you not care? You guys had like the best pizza in, the, in almost in the whole city. You know, uh, how could you not, not not care? And he said, because I never liked pizza. He said, when I was growing up, I liked cheesesteaks. My passion is cheesesteaks. And remember, I used to just hang with my mom at the grill. And I make cheesesteaks and hoagies, and that was my thing. And so, so now that's we actually, when my dad was here, we actually did eighty uh, percent of our business was pizzas, and twenty percent was cheesesteaks. And when my dad retired, he couldn't find anybody who could handle the dough the way he made it, uh, and so he changed the dough. He made it like easier to handle. So basically, I said he, so he dumbed it down, huh? He said, yeah. He said, but now we're doing eighty percent of our business is cheesesteaks. And 25 and 20 percent of our business is pizza. And we're making more money now than we ever made before. And I'm getting to make what I love to make. And and so that kind of like framed this whole journey was that he was bringing to his cheesesteaks the same passion that these pizza makers, whether it was multi-generational or the new kids on the block, were bringing to their pizzas. And he was, you know, transmitting basically his love for this food through the cheesesteaks at the grill. And I watched them make the cheesesteaks. I, I describe it in the book. I won't. I won't uh, spoil the story for anyone who wants to read it. But uh, you know, in in when he got to the grill, he was in his own universe. He was he was in the zone, and it really it 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 brought all the mess all the lessons that I had learned home for me when I saw that and realized it's not this this quest isn't just about pizza. It's about anything that we want to love and be passionate about and put our heart and soul into. And then the techniques and all come along with it. So your next book will be 
cheesesteak quest <laughs> coming spring 2024. Well, well, you know, if uh, if um, if this book does well enough for the publisher to say, let's do a volume two, I think that the next the next book could be, you know, the journey, the never ending journey continues, you know, and uh, uh, because it, it, like we say, in fact, the last uh, the way I framed this book, well, this new book is that I, I, I coined something I called the Ten Commandments of Pizza, and it, which included the fact that there's no perfect pizza, there's only perfect pizzas, and uh, you know, uh, uh, um, more more on top is not better, but better is better, and little pithy little sayings that became the framework of the book. But then on the last page of the book, I have something called the Eleventh Commandment, and the Eleventh Commandment is um, it's more about the quest than it is about the pizza. And the quest never ends. So that's really, you know, the, the message of the book is that is that and, and whether it's pizza as a metaphor or pizza as a literal thing, uh, you know, and whether it's a quest specific to pizza or a quest in terms of our own uh, life search for meaning and purpose, uh, the quest never ends. And and uh, and that's a good thing, because that means that we can you know, we wake up hungry the next day and we're ready for another slice. Well, Peter, thank you so much for being on the Taste Podcast. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So, Anna, we are back with our three things segment. Favorite three things of the moment, cookbooks, maybe a competition, maybe some restaurant meals. What is your first one? Okay, I bought some really exciting rice yesterday. <laughs> Not a sentence you hear every day. Respect, though. You Respect. know, rice too often gets relegated to to sort of like the neutral element in a meal, but good rice can be so good. And I learned this when I picked up some rice from the Rice Factory yep. recently. I went to Dainobu, which is a small Japanese grocery store here in Midtown. They had this amazing rice from the Rice Factory, which is... A company, I think, based in upstate New York that imports hyper-local, hyper-fresh Japanese rice and sells it sort of like you would find even coffee beans with, like, the date that it was milled mm. and sort of, like, where it was grown. And this rice is so beautiful. It has, like, this sort of floral taste to it. it has, like, a really beautiful, distinct texture where mm -hmm. every single grain sort of maintains its chew and it's, like, nice and glossy, really, I feel like this is going to totally transform my cooking. I really, really like it. I think investing in, like, a base product like that is such a good idea. Uh, you know, we've talked about Rancho Gordo in the past by getting better beans. And, like, some of these products we take for granted, we think that they're um, going to be super fresh off the shelf, but really they're not. Like, you know, buying those Goya beans, those might be, like, three years old. And same with rice. You don't know how, how old those uh, those bags have been at the, at the grocery store. So the fact that they're stamping a date on it and having a real terroir to it is really cool, Anna. Really cool. It's totally cool. What's one of your things this week? Well, this week, as of our recording, was a huge week in coffee. They had the, a big coffee expo up in Boston, Massachusetts, and they named the U.S. barista champion and the brewer's champion at the event. And these are really um, longstanding competitions that are very serious and very influential in the industry. Uh, and they're important for furthering coffee knowledge. So I, you got to respect the U.S. barista championship. But this year's winner, oh my gosh, 
Morgan Eckroth. I think I'm pronouncing her name right. Do you have you heard of Morgan Eckroth before? No, I haven't. Okay, so Morgan is a barista at Keeper Coffee in Portland, Oregon, a, a really great cafe uh, and coffee company there. She's also a TikToker. And this is the moment I wanted to bring it up. It is a big moment right now in coffee. The fact that one of the biggest influencers, she has over five and a half million followers on TikTok, has landed this prestigious award, which is judged rigorously. And her presentation, you can check out on YouTube, is incredible. It's such a work of just thought leadership in coffee and barista and, and drinks making. And I have to say, it gets me extremely excited that the fact that there's merging of like social media and mainstream media and the barista world and coffee world and specialty coffee. It's what specialty coffee needs. We need more folks like Morgan Eckroth, and it's just great to see. Very cool. What about you? What do you got? I have another ingredient to shout out, actually. Uh, we've talked a lot about flour tortillas on taste. We've made the case for why you should make them at home, which mm -hmm. is like a very simple uh, method that doesn't require too many ingredients. Love making them at home. We've talked about sort of the new wave of companies that are making really beautiful flour tortillas with, yeah. like, actual Sonoran flour and, like, really careful sourcing. And one of my favorite flour tortillas that I have gotten really into just because you can find them really easily in New York is the Vista Hermosa flour tortillas. Ooh, yeah. They're so good. Really, really, like, flaky and tender. They're made with avocado oil, so they're also totally vegan-friendly. And they're just really, really awesome. Like, for making a quick quesadilla or just, like, to have with a big pot of braised meat to eat as tacos, really good, totally decent price point. So what really makes good. a great tortilla? Like, I, I, I think we have, like, a, an understanding of, of what, like, the grocery store tortillas are. But then there's, like, another level, right? You're leveling up. Yeah, definitely. I think, like, having a slightly flaky texture, yeah. like, a little bit of char or sort of, like, caramelization on the outside is really good. Like, some some darker spots. Um, and just, like, tender enough that it sort of folds without getting soggy and mm -hmm. sort of, yeah. Well said. I like that. <laughs> That's how I would describe it. No, no, well said. I like that. What's your second thing this week? Well, I, uh, I've been deep in research for Korea World, the book Dookie Hong and I are working on. Um, and so I've been going to a lot of Korean restaurants and talking to great chefs. And I got to go to one last night, um, which is in Brooklyn, Hanyeo, by uh, Chef Jenny Kwok, who is well known in New York as the former owner and founder of Doksuni, which was a legendary East Village Korean restaurant uh, opened in the 90s. There's a well out of print cookbook that they made that I got to hit my hands on. But Hanyeo is a place I've not... Uh, visited in a few years, definitely pre-pandemic, and I wanted to check it out. Did not disappoint. Uh, the 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 menu is is modern in that there's uh, the sense of fusion happening, which uh, in 2022 modern Korean food there's no hiding from fusion. Fusion is exciting. It's nothing to to actually um, malign. And so she does a dukboki called a dukboki fondito. Oh yeah, I've seen this yeah. posted on Instagram. It's like one of those famous New York dishes that looks really exciting. It doesn't just look exciting. It is absolutely delicious. It's uh, traditional uh, Korean uh, rice cake stokboki made with chorizo and Oaxaca cheese. 
just a really great gochujang sauce with with these kind of Mexican influences. I love that dish. I also had um, ondio bokum, which is a baby octopus or squid with um, a really like spicy gochujang based sauce. I love it. She does it with trumpet mushrooms. Um, love to see this kind of traditional uh, Korean uh, bokum uh, saute done with uh, mushrooms and doing local mushrooms like that combination. They also did like, she did a sable. That's like, I was like, what is sable? And you answered it for me. You looked it up. Yeah, I actually um, found this answer thanks to a previous Taste podcast guest, Kathy Barrow. Oh yeah, right on. Her latest book that's about bagels and smoked fish um, defines sable as being, I believe it's a preparation of black cod. So that's really smart. I, 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 did not know that. And when I tasted it, I was like, okay, this is like the miso black cod you got at Nobu. And like it's been over and over, over repeated. But it was like it had its own distinct Koreanness. But the fish itself, I'd never really thought about sable in that way. So thank you for doing the research, Anna. Of course. What is your, uh, your next? Okay, item? last night I made chicken adobo, which I make chicken adobo all the time. It's like such an amazing thing to make for dinner when you don't really know what to have. It's basically like you braise some chicken in a combination of vinegar, coconut milk, and soy sauce. And it just cooks down into this like really thick, rich, salty sauce. Throw a lot of cloves of garlic in there and some peppercorns. It's so good. And this particular recipe I made was from the book – Philippinex by Angela Demayuga and Ligaya Michon. Cool. And the recipe is just really solid. Nice and peppery, lots of black pepper, very, very garlicky. I definitely recommend it. I've not cooked from that book yet, so I need to check it out. I think that book was one of of the best books of the year, uh, but I haven't cooked anything, so thanks for shouting that out. The desserts look really cool, too. I really want to try some of the desserts next. Really cool. What's your last thing? To wrap it up, I somebody uh, like slipped me their Paramount Plus login, and I was like, okay. Lucky. Well, I know, right? Like, lucky me. And I was like, okay, what am I going to watch? Oh, I know what I'm going to watch. I'm going to watch The Real World. Oh, my goodness. I haven't heard The Real World mentioned in, like, 15 years. I know. The Real no World offense. was an iconic show. I, I, it's funny, like, describing what The Real World is. Because certain age, you you know what The Real World is. The real. Well, I was focusing on The Real World San Francisco Season season three filmed in early 1993 in the city of San Francisco. Uh, objectively, one of the the best seasons of the series uh, in that it tackled a lot of uh, really important topics of the time, including um, one of the cast members, Pedro uh, Zamora, died of, of HIV complications during uh, soon after the filming, and it was like a big moment in culture. And just in general, just the idea of race and 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 uh, kind of uh, the, the way the mainstream media covered race at the time was less, uh, I would say, uh, progressive. And they really tackled the big issues at hand. That's the serious side of it. The less serious side of it is their food. It's crazy. I was waiting for you to get to this. Like, what is there food in this show? Is it a food show that I just didn't realize? It is like. And and maybe it's like a personal thing, and and maybe I'm just like connecting it to my own personal life at the time. But food plays a big role in this show, in that it's the backdrop of some of the most memorable scenes. There's a character named Puck, which you know I actually Wikipedia him. I guess he's doing well, which is crazy. But Puck like would stick his fingers into food at random times during the episodes, and there's a famous scene where he sticks his finger in peanut butter. 
And like just like and this is like he was famously like all about like his snot like uh, rockets and stuff. So like he's sticking his fingers in peanut butter. So that was one. There's like okay, there's I watched like nine episodes, like legitimately almost watched the whole season in one day. Judd, this like kind of um kind of sad boy um cartoonist. Sorry, Judd, he's a real real person. You're out there and you look like you're doing well, so hello, Judd. But you ate a lot of pasta on this episode and this season because you quote unquote did not have money. And you're eating these like insane amounts of pasta. Like I've never seen like it was like these massive Tupperware containers of pasta. And they were like out of to, Tupperware too. Like yeah. large quantities of pasta out of Tupperware. Interesting. Really weird. Um they go to a specialty food shop in San Francisco, 1993, which is a real time capsule to see, like, this shop. And I couldn't catch the name of it, but they're, like, handling all this, like, fruit. And, like, they're looking at, like, balsamic vinegar and and aged cheeses. And it's, like, really – I'm sure for, like, me growing up in, like, West Michigan, I'm, like, looking at these shops. It's like, wow, that's so, like, different, like, especially a food shop. Um, there is a scene where the Joe or Joe who replaced Puck when Puck was kicked off the show, Joe in 1993 was a very strict vegan and Joe, um, accidentally ate some pork. I think maybe the producers slipped it in just for drama and like has a very dramatic vomiting scene. Oh God. I don't know much about Joe. I, I, I think I'll leave it that way at that, but that was just like veganism in 1993 and like eating pork and vomiting. It was as a as a as a thirteen year old, I was like, well, "That's really interesting." People don't name their babies Puck anymore. <laughs> you know, you never see Pucks. I feel like Puck is not used enough, and there may be a renaissance. You know, when they probably do the the twenty year anniversary of this season, I'm sure we'll, they'll be doing that soon. Yeah, it's gonna be in the top of the baby names list that year. Anna, that was great. Thanks for telling us your three things. We'll catch you next time. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Heasel. The show is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Our theme music is by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening. <laughs>